Good morning. All festive with the uh, general election just days away. Today on the programme, I'm asking whether the politicians have taken food and farming seriously enough during the campaign. Since we eat food three times a day and, and uh, by looks of some of the politicians more often than that. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it is a bit of a shame. We'll also get an update from Henry Ward ahead of his appearance on tonight's Country File. He's the farmer you might remember at Short Ferry whose farmland has been underwater now for four weeks. Um, not a lot looks very different, unfortunately. The whole farm's still cut off by flood water. It still looks as it was when the riverbank actually burst. And later, we're talking bird species, those that are recovering thanks to farming practice. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Sean Dunderdale. Let's start this week at British Sugar. The beet campaign hasn't escaped the weather as uh, Simon Leeds can update us. Um, yeah, it's been a while since we spoke, uh, but the first thing I want to do is to say a huge heartfelt thank you to all our growers, contractors and hauliers who've continued to work well, incredibly hard to maintain supplies to the factory over the last month and indeed for much of the campaign, whilst conditions have been so difficult. Uh, the whole industry has been seriously affected by these exceptional conditions and it's heavily impacted on growers, doesn't matter if you're trying to harvest roots, uh, harvest maize or if you're trying to drill winter cereals, it's been, been really tough and it's interesting at home, uh, since the 24th of September uh, when it started to rain, after a, interestingly after a prolonged dry spell, uh, my own rain gauge, uh, I live down near Stamford and I've recorded since that date 331 millimetres. That's a little over 13 inches, and that's over half the annual mean rainfall, so it's, it's a lot of water. I'm pleased to say that the factory is going well, and despite these atrocious field conditions, we've been able to achieve budget slice for the campaign to date, and we've responded by operating what we call freeloading uh, for much of the campaign and working closely with growers, contracts and hauliers to maintain supplies. Having said that, we've been affected at particularly at a few weekends where we've had to slow down um, just, to, just to manage supplies. But in, you know, in short, again, thank you for your tenacity and hard work. Uh, it is appreciated. In terms of the crop itself, we're seeing very good yields across the whole area, and it's pleasing to see sugar content increase uh, to around 17% on a daily basis. So overall, you know, whilst we still have some way to go, uh, cross po- crop prospects are looking good. Thinking now, you know, ne- towards next year's crop, because uh, it will come, uh, if you haven't yet returned your contract offer to us, then please do so as soon as you possibly can. And also in the last week, you should have received your seed order paperwork. So again, do please make sure that you get that back to us, deadlines for the 13th of December. Uh, so that you stand the best possible chance of getting the varieties that uh, that you want. And again, thinking forward and thinking about crop agronomy for next year, as ever, the BBRO, the British Beet Research Organisation, are holding some great winter events. Last Monday and Tuesday, uh, they ran the Northern Tours, so we were up at Clumber and up at Brig uh, and at Rhizome. And it was great to see so many growers at those events hearing the latest updates from BBRO. And then looking forward to February... Uh, they're running uh, Beat Tech 20, which uh, for our region will be held on the 4th of February at Spalding. Full details of that can be found on the BBRO website at www.bbro.co.uk. And as ever, if you need support or guidance or information on any aspects of the crop, do please make use of your contract manager 
they're there to help and only pleased so you know very pleased to do so and finally let's hope some prolonged dry weather because goodness me we need it um, but whatever you do stay safe and if i don't speak to you before have a very happy christmas thank you simon that's simon leeds at british sugar now thursday is approaching as it does every week really but this thursday slightly different it's election day so we're into the closing hours of campaigning but if you're in farming has there really been that much debate about the future of the industry or indeed wider food security concerns if there has I seem to have missed it. Uh, Yes, we've heard words of comfort following the flooding, but very little said about the fact thousands of acres of land have been left devastated by the floodwaters. It was an issue I touched on a couple of weeks ago on the programme, you might remember, and one I thought I'd return to, this time with Andrew Clark, the NFU's Director of Policy. As I've said many times before, we all eat food... So I asked Andrew whether he agreed it's crazy, it's not higher up the political agenda. Since we eat food three times a day, and, and uh, by looks of some of the politicians more often than that. Um, yeah, no, I, I think it is a bit of a shame because uh, when we're looking at an election that's dominated by Brexit, one of the implications of Brexit, we're going to do, to do new tra- trade deals with other countries, uh, not just the European Union. And those other countries are often very big food exporters, like the States, like South America, uh, like New Zealand. Australia. Now they all produce food to different standards um, and some of those standards are not as good as the standards we have in the UK, whether it's on animal welfare or greenhouse gas per unit of output. Um, Brazil for example, it produces some great beef I admit, but it's at cost to the rainforest. Um, you look at some of the uh, states where they've got, again, they've got interesting livestock, poultry production, but produced to very different type of standards with much more use of antibiotics and growth, uh, growth promoters. Uh, so it's a different type of environment and we want to make sure that our consumers are aware of that. Talk a lot about Elms today. It still seems a lot of confusion as to what's happening there, I think. Is that fair yeah, to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I think there is a lot of confusion and uh, not helped by the fact that we've, uh, we're on our third election in, um, in four years. Um, so the, there's been a, quite a roller coaster of, and, uh, of new um, ministers in charge of the scheme and new ideas about what it should look like. And I think all of us are in a bit of a holding pattern and have been now for, well, nearly uh, 18 months, two years, wondering what's going to happen. So we've got as good a view as we can of what it looks like but we're waiting on the outcome of the next election to see what this or this election rather to see what actually comes out of that and certainly there will be some big challenges facing whoever is the new defra secretary come december the 13th yeah no i mean they'll be sitting on uh, sitting down to one of the first things we'll be looking at is yeah that trade agreement but actually right on that uh, take there's going to be how do you want to take agricultural policy in the UK, uh, and particularly in England? Because, of course, it's a devolved uh, recipe now. Uh, so in England, DEFRA Secretary, do you want to go down a transition to a new agricultural policy? Or are we actually in a situation where we've got another referendum coming, in which case we're in a holding pattern again, in which case don't go down a transition, hold on to what we've got and provide some stability so farm businesses can see a future um, because if they are not got that income future, then uh, there's not going to be any environment to look after. Difficult times. It's uncertain times, but we've been saying that for, what, three or four years now? <laughs> yes, I know, and I think, uh, well, farmers are very resilient. Um, uh, I think ultimately this tells them that uh, don't rely on government to come up with the answers. Um, you've got to do it yourselves, um, which is a hard place to be uh, where government has such a big impact on terms of the markets that we operate in.
That's Andrew Clark. He's Director of Policy at the NFU. And we'll see what Thursday brings, or rather Friday the 13th. Right, one man who always gets my vote is Kit Dickinson at Openfield. He's back with the weekly update. Morning, Kit. Hi, Sean. Thank you for your vote. <laughs> Anytime. So, <laughs> what's happening? Uh, well, global uh, wheat values have eased, eased back early this week through a combination of profit-taking from the US market and news that Russia are competitive again, as they are offered the lowest tender for milling wheat into Egypt. US seabought wheat futures fell 2%, which has nearly wiped out any gains as of last Friday. London Liffey fell just 50p, and that is also worth considering as the pound is firming. On a positive tone, more winter wheat has been drilled this week on lighter land and some after sugar beet. There is still time to get winter wheat drilled up until the end of February on some varieties, but do check with your agronomist before drilling if you're unsure. Both new crop and old crop values have reduced this week due to currency and more drilling, but 150x the farm is still achievable for November 20 on new crop. Moving on to all seed rape this week, remains largely unchanged, domestic homes still have cover to Christmas and there are no sellers in the current market. Again, on the positive side, we should see more sellers coming to the market in the new year as there is still a large amount of crop to sell. The S&D for old crop is tight and will be even tighter looking forward into new crop. A reduced area planted, flea beetles, slugs and poor weather, as I mentioned last week, have all influenced the reduced area to combine next year. This should help new crop prices rise, although it is hard to get an exact bid currently due to politics and uncertainty in the market. As I said last week, if new crop prices rise, this should have a positive effect on old crop, which will be most likely to be in the new year now. Barley values have reduced this week in line with feed wheat, but are still well above the lowest values of the year. New crop values are limited, and at present, due to the unknown amount that will be drilled in the spring, there are limited prices going forward. Looking forward to new crop for feed barley, it is nearly the opposite to feed wheat. Forward values are under pressure and at present making old values look appealing in comparison. Therefore, taking some cover and some tonnage in the new year may not be a bad option. Beans. At the start of the marketing year, the Egyptians were buying beans on a 555 spec or lower and they were fussy about which parcels they were accepting. There is now a shortage of these beans across the UK which has meant the Egyptians have had to raise their spec and take poorer quality beans. As a result of this, contact your farm business manager at Openfield to get an exact price for your sample of beans. So moving on to prices this week for feed wheat, December 141 to 143, February 143 to 145 and May 146 to 148. Looking forward to new crop, November 20, 152 to 154 and milling premiums are still £20. Barley for December 121 to 123, February 123 to 125, May 126 to 128. There are limited prices further forward and malting premiums are circa 8 to 10 pounds. Oilseed rate for December is 316 to 318, February 319 to 321 and May 322 to 324. But again, limited prices further forward. Thank you, Kit. That's Kit Dickinson from Open Field. It's four weeks now since the Barlingo was breached, flooding Henry Ward's farmland at Short Ferry. Must have seen the images. They were all over the national media uh, a few weeks ago. Indeed, you'll see them on Countryfile on TV tonight. This week, work finally began to fix the breach, which seems an extraordinary amount of time, doesn't it, for that water to be just left sitting there. Thousands of acres underwater and a couple of days ago we went back to chat with Henry 
and just find out what the latest is. Yes, yeah, so looking out across the farm, not a lot looks very different, unfortunately. Um, the whole farm's still cut off by flood water, still fairly deep. And uh, yeah, within four, four weeks, it still looks as it was when the riverbank actually burst. Um, we have now got contractors on site repairing the hole in the riverbank with sheet piling that's going in. They're doing a good job. Um, however, work's come to a standstill again today because um, some of their plants broken down. Um, we don't know how long that piling job's going to last, but it's going to be upwards of a week. Um, and then they're not going to start pumping the water out until they can actually float their pontoons off the flood water. So we're going to see water here, well, until Christmas at least. On Monday, uh, we had an electric pylon um, fall over. It's actually been propped up with another pole that the electricity board have put in as a prop. Um, so the contractors and Western Power are very concerned about the flood water actually becoming live with electric. Um, so they've now switched that power line off and diverted the, the electricity round on a ring main. So if it's not one thing, it's another at the minute. So first of all, the burst in the riverbank, then waiting for contractors to come, come on to site. Um, the electricity pole falling over and now we've got broken down plant holding the job up again. I'm going to see water across the farm well into the spring um, but then the cleanup operation will start. Uh, that'll take months to clean up but actually the knock-on effect of this is going to be years. So the soil, the soil bi biology will all be dead, all the earthworms will be dead, all the, you know, the fungi and bacteria that lives within the soil will be dead. Um, so it's going to take me years to get back to full production on this farm again. So last week we had Emma Howard Boyd out, who's the chief executive of the Environment Agency. She basically came to listen, uh, which was something, I suppose, uh, to our concerns, um, to why this has happened and to what we think should be happening going forwards. We just hope that she's listened. Um, you know, there needs to be serious action taken from this. And that's the only positive that I think I can take out of this event. If we can get these rivers and waterways maintained in the future, because they haven't been up to now. I would like more clarity longer term. Are they going to start maintaining waterways? Do they want more floodplains? If they want to use this farm as a floodplain to save Lincoln, which it has this time, that's fine. But we need to come to a formal arrangement with proper compensation. Um, but no, things have you know, been left very loose on that and I'm very keen to get something in concrete set, you know, going forwards. This farm isn't a floodplain. There is a floodplain which neighbours our farm, which is Branston Island, which protects Lincoln. It protects over 7,000 houses in Lincoln, according to the Environment Agency. However, we're five times the size of that and we've flooded. So we've taken huge pressure off the city of Lincoln from flooding, which is good. Of course it is. People's houses need protecting. However, we ought to be compensated for that. You know, it's um, my livelihoods at risk here. Henry Ward there, and as mentioned, you'll see him on Countryfile tonight. And next week on the programme, we'll be meeting another farmer who's been hit by flooding four times in the last seven weeks. And we'll also have a bit of financial advice for those of you if you're struggling because of the conditions.
Right, change of mood. Last week on the programme, we discussed our farming positivity idea, spreading a bit of positivity here on the farming programme. This week, I've set Jim Egan the challenge of finding some good farming news for us. Many of you will remember Jim from the Allerton Project, of which he's still a supporter with the environment very much at his heart. He's now a technical advisor at King's Crop, and Jim's going to join us each month to share his thoughts on the industry. Jim, what have you found this month? Thank you, Sean. And November saw the publication of the DEFRA Wild Bird Populations in the UK 1970 to 2018 report. I know, quite sad, but I actually look forward to this report coming out every year. The report is based on long-term data sets collected and analysed by the British Trust for Ornithology and the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. And as ever, this year, the headlines were damning. The one I, first one I read said turtle dove flies towards extinction as numbered halve in the UK. I really dreaded reading any further. But the death report confirms that the turtle dove is in real danger. Numbers have declined by over 51% in just the last five years. And there's a total decline of 98% since 1970. Clearly this bird, like many others, needs farmers' helps. And there are some great projects working to help it. There's one called Operation Turtle Dove delivering some work in specific areas such as Upper Wensum in Norfolk where farmers are delivering targeted feed uh, during the spring as well as habitat improvements such as pond management. But as I went a bit further into the newspaper story I was reading I noticed that the subheadline said some species show signs of recovery. It was this that encouraged me to read further and do a little bit more research of my own. Fortunately, amongst the bad news, there's also some very positive stories. Reed bunting, corn bunting, goldfinch and stock dove all showed significant short-term increases in population between 2012 and 2018. It's really probable that populations have been boosted by some agri-environment practices that many of you are putting in place, leaving overwintered stubbles, growing wild birdseed mixes, Supplementary feeding during December and through the hungry gap right the way through till April. Pollen and nectar mixes that are there to feed young birds insects in the summer. But I also actually believe that a lot of this may be down to significant changes in farming practice. There's a real increase in spring cropping and cover cropping, which I think is really now starting to show benefit for wildlife. It's only a glimmer of hope. And numbers still need to increase significantly. But it is a positive start. If only the main headline had said, there are signs of recovery for farmland birds. It might have been a much more positive way to encourage all of us to do that just that little bit more. Anyway, that's my good news story for this week. Next time we'll take a look at what the next generation of agri-environment schemes might look like. The challenges they might ask you to deliver. And we'll consider words like natural capital and public goods. Thanks for listening. Jim Egan there with a bit of farming positivity for this week. And he'll be back again in the new year. If you've something positive you'd like to share, then, you know, some good news, something you've seen, something that's happened to you, do please get in touch. On to uh, agronomy before the forecast for the week ahead. Sean Sparling is back from Sparling Agronomy Services. Sean, you and Jim know each other as well, don't you? Morning. Yes, good morning, Sean. Yeah, I've known Jim a long time. He talks an awful lot of sense. I agree with everything that he's just said. You know, farming 
has a massive diversity of habitats for wildlife. We cater for wildlife, we concentrate on it, we change our practices to suit the wildlife, to encourage certain species of birds in. And we're doing so much good out here on farmland to manage and give a home to wildlife where that home has already been lost. And it gets very frustrating for me to hear certain people, there's a certain core of pointy-fingered, critical people who, if it wasn't for Emmerdale, wouldn't get any fresh air at all, who are happy to criticise farming and make us the scapegoat for all of the lost habitat and for all of the loss of species as we've gone through the last 20, 30 years. But I think it's important sometimes we sit back and we take a good look at ourselves and take responsibility sometimes for things that may be our fault and I say our I use us as a collective as a species and I'll give you an example when I was a little boy we I was born in Boston but we moved and we lived and dad worked in Kenilworth in Warwickshire until I was nine and we moved back up to Sleaford in the St Denis Avenue end of Sleaford so when I was a little boy I used to go out every evening and every weekend into all the fields that surrounded the house we used to find yellowhammer's nest in the scrub woodland behind the house we used to go over the road to where the ponds were and we used to find newts crested newts great crested newts tiny little garden newts we used to go frog spawning we used to climb the trees and we were surrounded in those fields and in those trees by the tree sparrows and the dunnocks and the blackbirds and the thrushes and the skylarks and all of the wildlife that people talk about being in decline today we were seeing when i was a little boy we go back to sleaford now all of those fields have gone. I sound really old, I'm aware of that. I remember when this was all fields. But that is an absolute fact. It's a truism and it's consequent of population increase. You know, we build on all of these sites where that habitat was. It's quite sad to me because one of the ponds where I used to go looking for great crested newts has been built all around it and it's just fenced off and there's a pond with newt in it. No grass fields, no nothing anywhere near it the pond's still there in the middle of an urban conglomeration and it's very very sad all of those fields have gone all that habitat's gone so i think it's important sometimes we don't just point the finger at agriculture we do so much for wildlife in agriculture the problem lies the more people you get the more houses you need the more schools the more businesses the more roads the more habitat you remove because you need to build on that to service the requirements and the needs of that increasing population. That is why we see bird decline in urban areas. That is why all of those birds are now concentrated, or most of them anyway, I can't say all, but a lot of them are concentrated within the agricultural environs. And that's what we do. I'm walking fields all day. I see the blackbirds and the thrushes and the starlings and the bullfinches, the chaffinches, the yellowhammers, the dunnocks, the tree sparrows, the house sparrows. I see them all day because they're out here in the middle of nowhere with me. I walk 15 to 20 miles a day and I see all that wildlife around me. But as towns and cities get wider and wider, that habitat gets fewer and fewer acres. So the other problem, of course, as well, is flooding. Because when you've got arable land, a lot of it's sitting wet, as we all know out there. But the water soaks into agricultural land. It gets into the aquifers, into the water table and goes away. You cover that with concrete and tarmac and roads and houses and factories and schools. You remove the ability of the land to absorb the water. Hence the reason we see far more flooding as we go through time because we're building on more and more of the areas that used to absorb that water now it has to run off and get 
onto land which can't cope with the volume. So I think it's very important we understand the level of hypocrisy there is out there. The pointy finger brigade who say farming is the culprit need to take a good, long, hard look in the mirror and understand that actually farming is part of the solution. It is the haven for the wildlife that we are displacing by all the building work that goes on. And people should take an interest in it. They should look into it. Make your own decisions. Look at how we do our job. If you still want to criticise after you've understood how we do it, that's absolutely fine. We're all entitled to our own opinions. I'm critical of things, but only after I've had a look into seeing whether I believe my own view or whether I'm just going to trust somebody who sits in an office and whose field is a piece of paper and whose plough is a pen. So um, let's move on to agronomy, Sean. Now I'll finish my rant. Um, two or three things. Firstly, don't forget there are restrictions on pre-emergence herbicides. Crystal, for example, flufenacet, pendimethalin. You can only use that pre-emergence on winter wheat until the end of November. You can't use it pre-em after that. It's on the label. So check whatever pre-em you're considering using. Make sure you're still safe and legal to do so. The good thing is that with all the wet we've had, this enforced late drilling we've seen, we've seen a massive, massive flush and destruction of blackgrass out there. So hopefully the blackgrass won't be quite as good. I'm pretty sure blackgrass seed isn't amphibious, so it shouldn't have withstood the waterlogging, um, hopefully, because you never know with things like blackgrass. But you can drill your winter wheat up until the end of February. Yes, you'll get a yield penalty, but it's going to be better than not putting anything in the ground. And remember, these fields are very wet. They're going to need some sort of crop in them to try and dry them out this year. So there is plenty of time. And slugs. We're starting to see an increase in slug activity out here in the field. For goodness sake, stay away from metaldehyde products. Use the ferrous phosphate. It won't get into the water course. The slugs will still be dealt with just as well. It only targets slugs and snails. We don't want to be putting metaldehyde onto waterlogged fields because it will get into the aquifers, it gets into the reservoirs, and that causes complications for abstraction, not because it's dangerous, but because of how much it costs to get it out. So let's keep our heads down, Sean. Let's give it another seven days and see where we are this time next week. Thank you, Sean Sparling of Sparling Agronomy Services. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. It looks like a blustery few days ahead. Today certainly is. It should be mostly dry, though, though the winds could be a problem, especially overnight tonight. Today itself, we're looking at highs of 8 Celsius. Those winds blowing up to 40 miles an hour from the southwest. Tomorrow, still windy but dry with sunny spells. Getting colder overnight, though. Temperatures for Tuesday, for example, at 1 or 2 Celsius again, with the winds more from the northwest. A new area of low pressure will head our way on Tuesday, bringing rain again. Temperatures might warm up a bit, though. 11 the high. The wind's from the south. That's the reason. 20 to 45 miles an hour. And then we've got chillier air heading our way from the northwest for the middle and latter end of the week. That could bring wintry showers. We'll keep a check with the hourly forecasts. For now, though, that is the forecast. Next week, as well as a new government, maybe even a new prime minister, who knows? Uh, one thing I do know is that we're celebrating with Waldmarsh as they see their thousandth member join them. Who is it and why have they joined? Find out next week. Until then, take care.